And so the thing that became most important to me in terms of casting a vision is what could I do that could help people focus on the best of themselves to bring out who they were and not focus on their worst experience? Because we tend to do that. We think that the worst of what we've experienced is who we are. That's our guest, OJ Oleka. I'm so excited to have on Dr. Oleka today. Always start with OJ because that's how I knew him as a college student. You guys know I love to bring on old friends and reconnect with them. Selfishly, it's just the way of using the podcast to get to know what's going on in their world. We're going to love our time with OJ. His perspective, you are a leader as a young professional, as well as the diverse experiences he's had along that path of him being a leader an influencer is one that all of us can learn from. So with that, I want us to get right to our time with Dr. OJ Oleka. Well, officially, formally, because we are so formal, I would like to welcome you, OJ, to the Sharpen Podcast. It's such a privilege here to have you on today. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to put my thumb on when we first met. I know it was something through college days and student government and all the things, but then most of my life, I feel like I have watched from afar and you've done amazing, wonderful things. So I'm so glad to have you on and for our audience to learn. But for those that are meeting you for the first time and who haven't like Facebook Crete from afar, well, number one, you have permission now to go do so, but tell us a little bit about you and who you are as a person. Well, that's a, certainly a big question, who I am as a person and, and a little bit about me. Well, I mean, honestly, when whenever anyone asks this question, uh, it is always important for me to talk about my dad. My dad grew up in abject poverty in a small village in Nigeria, uh, which is country in Western Africa. And he lost his father by the time that he was four years old. And he and his mother decided that he had to do something to set himself up for success. So they settled on education. They knew that this was a thing that could be useful to any kid, regardless of their background or circumstance. So as often was the case uh, in those days in that place in Nigeria, my father went to a school with a headmaster. He went and lived on site and lived with the, with the headmaster, who actually was a, a pretty cruel individual, is the way my, my dad would tell the mm. story. A guy who wouldn't let him have his own resources, wouldn't let him have his own bar of soap, oftentimes wouldn't even give him uh, the three meals a day that all the other kids were getting. And my dad never really talked about why mm. he was picked on by this headmaster, but he certainly was. But throughout that experience, he learned the importance of doing things for himself, that despite your circumstances, if you can, you should take the little resources that you have to try and make life, to try and make things a little bit better. And so that's what my dad did. He would take the little bitty bars of soap that other kids would leave behind. You know, if you've ever had a bar of soap that you use, sometimes it gets so small that you just throw away the refuse. Well, my my dad didn't do that. He would take those little pieces from other kids, make his own bar so that he could have something to wash his body because he knew he wanted to be clean because in his mind, the way that he would put it, cleanliness is next to godliness. And he wanted to make sure that he was doing everything he could to present his faith well and to be on his best footing. So eventually he got this education from this cruel headmaster, but then he wanted to figure out what was next. So he took a bunch of odd jobs. One of those was being a a radio DJ and was a radio personality. Kirby, not unlike yourself right now, was the great podcaster back in the day. Uh, there weren't podcasts, and so my dad was a radio personality, and they called him Sammy Sparkle. His name is Sam Oleka. So Sammy Sparkle, I think, is a 
pretty good radio name. But <laughs> even then, uh, he decided, you know, what else can we do? I want to do a little bit more. I want to make a little bit more of myself. So he met my mother, this beautiful woman, and they said, well, let's go to the United States of America and live this thing called the American dream. And so they did. And they did the same thing that got my father out of the jam that he was in earlier in life. And that was to get a quality education. They came to the United States for higher education, for their post-secondary degrees, to go to college. And long story short, my father ended up getting a bachelor's, a master's, and then a PhD. My mother also got her bachelor's and a master's. And they settled first in the Midwest, moving up to Michigan, and then down to Kentucky is where we ended up staying. And that's where I grew up. And my father became a dean at Kentucky State University. My mother, a labor and delivery nurse. They bought a house, put three kids through college, of course, their favorite, their baby boy, and lived the American dream. And the rest, they say, is history. I know none of that is about me directly, but in order to know who I am, you got to know who my parents are, but specifically my dad, because it's his legacy that drives me. He is the one that pulled my generation, my family, the Olekas, out of poverty. And that's the thing that drives me every single day. If it is the stuff I did in college at UL, University of Louisville, you can see from my sweatshirt here, uh, or as a teacher through Teach for America in St. Louis, teaching middle school math to low-income kids who are just as talented as any kid who came for money or anywhere in between, or with the policy work, it's this idea that if you give people enough resources and opportunity, then they'll succeed and they'll thrive all on their own. But you got to give them the stuff that they might be missing. And I saw that firsthand hearing from my dad and the legacy that he left us, each of his kids. We, we sadly lost him uh, in January 2016 to a stroke, but uh, he lives on in his wonderful wife and his beautiful children and now his granddaughter. But those are the things that drive me. And that, in a very short, very long answer, is who I am. Beautiful story. I never knew about your dad to the full extent. So thank you for sharing. And you're 100% on his legacy very much lives on even thinking about it just makes a lot of sense now, even as you've shared. I mean, as I've known you from afar, your life has been very marked in what the way you describe him. So thank you for sharing that. You did allude to how your dad shaped the way that you thought about some of the work that you've done. And you mentioned some of those, but for those that are meeting you here for the first time, tell us a little bit about the really impactful work you have been a part of and then where we find you today and what we're doing. The work that I've done, I think, has really followed a, a singular thread that has gone in a, in a lot of different needles, I guess, if we'll, if we'll say it that way. It started out in college. I, again, as I, I told the story about my dad, education was really important to me. And I got a scholarship to go to the University of Louisville, the Porter Scholarship, uh, which was largely for Black students who graduated from a high school in Kentucky and had good grades and, and good test scores. But our retention rates at UofL weren't always so great. One of the things I wanted to focus on was making sure that we figured out a way to improve and increase retention. And this was an issue for me. I mean, I, I didn't do so well my first couple of years. I, in fact, lost that scholarship because of academic challenges, but then ended up getting it back because of some crazy academic wizardry. I, I pulled uh, pulled some classes around in terms of taking them over and, and then getting higher grades and uh, doing better in other courses. And again, it wasn't because of lack of intelligence. It was because of lack of discipline on, on my part. College is an independent time. And so a lot of folks don't always focus the way that they should. But what I did was I used that experience to figure out exactly how we could improve things for people that were in my class and people coming after me. So that meant we developed 
and academic plans. Students would have to turn in their grades and have to figure out what courses they weren't doing well in. And then they could have the option of not taking those courses. They could drop them effectively before the grades set in to lower their GPA and then change a different major to figure out exactly what they wanted to do. Because this was my first glimpse into seeing that not all high schools were created equally. Mm -hmm. You can get a great grade in your senior science course, if it was physics or chemistry or biology, but at another school, that A might have been a C. And so you might not be as prepared to take a couple courses. It doesn't mean that you're not smart, just means that maybe being a medical doctor isn't what you need to do right now, but instead you could do something else that could be just as helpful, just as meaningful, but doesn't have to give you the rough and tumble of biology 240 or histology or organic chemistry, which are tough courses if you don't have that background. So anyway, what that taught me was if you have good leaders in place who have a good understanding of what their peers are going through, you can make some pretty significant changes, which then led me to student government. I wanted to get involved in SGA because I, I didn't like the way that our student government was going at the time. I didn't think that they were listening to the people, if I could use such a broad phrase for a, a bunch of college students, but I wanted to try my hand at leadership at a, at a broader scale. And that's what I did. And our whole focus was how do we listen to students? How do we figure out a new cardinal experience, uh, as we called it? And how can I be a better representative and on the board of trustees as the student trustee? And during my year as student body president, we put forward a 10-year plan, and we called it that, a, the Student 2020 Plan, a new cardinal experience where we wanted to focus on specific things, college affordability, student services, and making sure that students felt like their college experience was exactly what they wanted, that they felt like they could be a part of their academic institution. And the neat thing was... 10 years later, which actually was this past year, a lot of those things came to fruition. Mm -hmm. The student body presidents who came after me, they stuck to it, which means we built a new rec center. We figured out some dining stuff. We got some public safety issues fixed and students feel like they're more connected to the university more than ever. Now that, that wasn't because of me individually or uniquely, but I think what is important in leadership is putting forward a robust, positive idea on how the world can work. And as a young professional, obviously we're all capable of doing those things. So quickly, the thing that I did next to start my journey as a true young professional, I had my degree in hand and I was ready to take on the world. People said to me, they said, well, OJ, you, you have a degree in marketing and minor in political science. You've been a student body president. What are you going to go do? And hearkening back to my roots, I said, I'm going to go teach because education is what got me here. It's what changed the trajectory for my family. And if I can do something useful for people, it's to give them a good quality education. So that's what I did with Teach for America. I taught middle school math in North City, St. Louis, all low-income students. And it was there that I learned a ton of profound stuff. But I, I have a tendency to answer questions with 10-minute answers, so I will hush myself. No, Go keep going. Yes, this is so, <laughs> I, I love it. The education background is similar. So you're exactly right. There are profound lessons in education. So what do you feel like you learned during that time period? Well, generally speaking, there, there were two really important things that I learned. One is that every kid can, in fact, learn. There, there's this misnomer, and I think a lot of our generation was really caught up in it, that the kid that came from the, the wrong side of the tracks or the kid that came from the quote-unquote non-fixed home, the home that was quote-unquote broken, those kids couldn't learn that for some reason their trauma or their difficulty was inherently worse than ours, and it meant that they weren't intelligent. What I found out affirmatively was that that just isn't true. Every kid that I taught came from a low-income background. 
99% of my students were students of color, black students specifically, again, in North City, St. Louis. So think about if you're from a city or an urban area or know anything about how a lot of our cities are divided, think about that section of town that maybe a lot of folks, if they're not from there, don't go to and is largely black and largely low income. If you're from Louisville, it's West Louisville. I know there are different parts of Bowling Green or Owensboro or Paducah or different parts of Kentucky and all across the country where that section of town exists. A lot of folks don't talk about it. A lot of people talk about it in a specific way, some well-intentioned, some pretty nefarious, but we all know what that section of town is. That's where I talk. And what we were taught growing up was that kids and families that came from that section of town couldn't learn. They didn't have the same capabilities as the rest of us. What I found in St. Louis, that just wasn't true. Every one of those kids could learn what they needed were good quality adults across the board in every classroom, in every administrative position that believed in them. So that's what I try to offer, at least in their math class. They're going to get a teacher, an adult in me, who believed in them, who was going to love on them a little bit. And it wasn't that I was perfect. I was not a perfect teacher by any means. But I think because of the work that I was able to do and my belief in my kids, a lot of them saw growth in their understanding in math, some two, three, in some cases, four years now, they were all behind. So the, the thing that was interesting was that for a seventh grade student, if you came in at a third grade reading or math level, in my case, even if you learned two, three, four years, you were still behind by the time that you left. So there was one issue that I thought every kid could learn, but learning wasn't enough. The other aspect, the other thing that I learned was that adults, if you gave them a good quality job in a good and decent career, you smush those two things together, good quality education for kids and a good quality career for adults, you could effectively end a lot of the symptoms of poverty in a pretty short time in pretty rapid fashion. Because you have adults who are able to have good stable careers and they have a few things. They've got a schedule that they can stick to. They probably have some type of benefit and in health insurance. They've got a stable income that again, they can budget around and they can spend more time with their kids, more spend more time with their family. So all of a sudden you're able to build good quality community because you have good quality jobs and kids are able to learn at school. So then you start to have these generational changes that are critical and key for safe, healthy, vibrant, thriving neighborhoods. So those are the two things that I learned. Give kids a good quality education, give adults a good and decent job and career, and you can change communities for the better. And what I knew I wanted to do, because I saw that education alone wasn't enough, I saw that those job opportunities weren't always there. I wanted to figure out what can I do to change these broader systems, to create more opportunities where education can be better, where jobs can be more plentiful, and they can happen in these parts of town that a lot of people have forgotten. That's what I wanted to get committed to doing. And that's why I moved back home because I wanted to do it right here in Kentucky. Oh, man. I, OJ, you had at such a young age, as that student government officer, as that regent, as the teacher, at a very young age, you had a whole heck of a lot of vision for your life, but not just yours. I mean, the students that you talked about, you know, the young men and women that you were affirming. And as you said, just loving on them really well, as well as providing quality education. I love that. Tell us about that. I mean, I know you talk a lot about your dad, but was that something that you had modeled or it was just one of those that the head and the heart align. I just feel like that's probably a natural gift for you as vision, but you seem to really have had that at a young age. Can you kind of reflect on that and share maybe where that stemmed from or what did that look like? Well, that is a lot of my dad uh, to be 
to be frank, he kind of in, instilled that, I think, in each of you us. You had no other option, right? He was going to give well, you vision. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. But even <laughs> even different, I guess, from my earthly father, I learned it from another father, and that was my heavenly one. My faith is critically important to me. And one of the things that I learned in my faith is that everybody has a purpose. It's something that you learn in scripture, you learn in the Bible. I, I learned going to church, everybody has a God-given purpose and everyone needs to do something. And the way that I looked at it, I thought, well, what would I want to be done for me? How would I want things to be done in my life? How had things been done in my life up until a lot of these points? And I thought if there was something that I could do that could make people's lives better by allowing them to make things better for themselves, that's what I wanted to do. And I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy and hokey, I guess, but I mean, that's what happened with my scholarship. Somebody said, well, here's here's a good way to study. So maybe if you do this, you'll get better grades. And I thought, well, that's profound. I wonder if I can share this with other people. And the same thing with my students. I thought, you know, the, a lot of kids didn't believe in themselves. Actually, it's, I think, interesting. My second year, I told my students about how poorly I did in college to start out. Mm. I used to say I was student body president. I was homecoming king. All these things are important. You too one day can be these things. And my students and in, in, in uh, words that were, we'll say more P less PG than the ones I'm using now. So we don't really care about that. And I said, well, what do you care about? And they said, we want you to be real. We want you to be authentic. Mm. So that's what I did. I said, look, my grades were terrible my first and second year of college. I showed them my transcript and said, who, who do you think these grades belong to? And they're like, we don't know. Somebody who's dumb. And I was like, no, no, none of you are dumb. None of us are dumb. We just, we, right. We, we need, we need a little bit of help and they belong to me. I'm not dumb. Now you've hurt my feelings. But I mean, it, it was this <laughs> idea that anybody can get a little bit better if you have some resources. And also if you understand where other people are coming from, this was the thing that was really important to me. And I'll kind of merge some of these things together. Everybody has a purpose. But also, you don't know where people are coming from. People will look at my dad and see Dr. Sam Oleka, Dean of College of Arts and Sciences and Interdisciplinarity Studies at Kentucky State University. Great professional title, long name, a man of great stature and incredibly regal. But they didn't see the fact that he grew up without a dad. They didn't see the fact that he grew up in poverty that he was an immigrant who came to the United States and had to navigate an entirely new world. They didn't see that he and my mother had to struggle those early years figuring things out, that they lost a child, their second baby. Mm -hmm. People didn't see those things, but they were all part of his story, all part of my mother's story, and as a result, all part of my story. And so the thing that became most important to me in terms of casting a vision is what could I do that could help people focus on the best of themselves to bring out who they were and not focus on their worst experience. Because we tend to do that. We think that the worst of what we've experienced is who we are. And we do this as young professionals. We screw up at work. We make a big mistake. We send the wrong email to the wrong person. We say the wrong thing. We take a chance on ourselves and it doesn't pan out. And so we decide that's who we are. We are the worst. But what I've tried to decide is that that's not who you are. You are, in fact, your best. And what you can do and need to do is learn from those instances where things didn't work out. And you figure, how can I get better? How can I improve? But also, how can I bring people with me? How can I make sure that the next person doesn't make the same mistake? Because we're only better off by learning from the mistakes that we make and making sure that others don't make them as well. Well, you live that out. And you've chosen careers, right, to pursue that. So tell us about, you talked about 
gosh, I really wanted to do this work. I saw the importance of all, all these kind of pieces of your purpose adding up and how the the policy, I'm so thankful you said, I want to come back to my home state of Kentucky to do so. <laughs> Tell us about, about that transition and the work that, that you've done from a policy perspective. And then even now, you know, where we would find you today and how that even weaves together in the story of how you thought about your purpose. I came back to Kentucky again, as you said, I really wanted to work on the policy stuff. And I started out working with Teach for America recruiting. I wanted to find good people who wanted to be great leaders who could first do so in the classroom for kids. But as anyone who talks to me for more than 10 or 15 minutes will, will know that I have a, a love and an interest for politics and policy. I, I think that those are great avenues to do good things for people. And so I started to say, I'd like to see us have more leaders who care about these types of things, educational opportunity and equity and economic mobility. And I ended up working for a candidate who I was running for governor who was focused on those explicit things, those two things, educational and economic opportunities, particularly for low-income families. Now, my guy didn't win in the primary, but what it allowed me to do was meet another candidate running for office, Allison Ball. She was running for state treasurer at the time for her first term. She was successful. And she said, well, why don't you come on board and work for me? And I said, that sounds great. And I came on as her communications director at first and then got promoted to be chief of staff. Uh, after a, a little bit under a year, which is a great opportunity for me. I was in my mid to late 20s. I had just gotten married and I was like, this is a new and exciting time in life. How can I really then begin to focus on the policy interests that I had? And again, it goes back to creating opportunities for low-income families. And the thing that I got to focus on was developing our financial literacy initiative. When I think about financial literacy, I think about how people can understand how money works, how money moves, how it can be best used to build wealth. And that was the thing, obviously, that always mattered to me, creating opportunities for wealth, again, specifically for low-income families. So what we did was we pushed through a bill that made financial literacy a graduation requirement for every kid in Kentucky. So regardless of your background, when you graduate from Kentucky, starting actually this fall, 2020, by the time you graduate, you'll have had a course in financial literacy. That means you'll have a better understanding of it, the same way you'd have a better understanding of literacy in math in general or science or whatever. Now you have a better understanding of how money works, of how debt works, of why loans can be good, why they can be bad, how to pay them off, what credit is, what interest rates are, what interest is, compound interest, all of the things that matter. Again, all of us as young professionals, I think we wish we would have learned this when Heck we were yes. in a lot better <laughs> financial yes. situations than many of us do now. But that's the idea is to set mm -hmm. people up again to be successful. And I got that from, again, my time teaching. One of the things that I did was I went on a retreat and they asked us, they said, what's your big goal? What do you want to do in life? Educators, teachers, at least with Teach for America, often had a big goal for their classrooms. Students would learn 80% mastery or whatever the subject was, or, or they could be as vast as students will learn to be citizens of the world and take care of anybody that they come in contact with. It could be so focused on classroom stuff or so big in terms of how they wanted their students to see the world. So they said, what's your big goal for life? And I thought about all the things that, that we've discussed so far. And I said, if, if people could just have a good quality education, good and decent job, then they wouldn't have to be in poverty generation after generation after generation. 
So my big goal became to end generational poverty in the United States, which again is a really big goal. Uh, but if you break it down, it really is a few pretty specific things. Mm-hmm. Good quality education, good and decent job so that families and communities can thrive. That's what I get to do every day now. After leaving the treasurer's office after four great years, and I, I loved it, Treasure Ball, and I are still in good terms now, I consider to be a, a mentor of mine. I joined the Association of Independent Kentucky Colleges and Universities, IQ for short, AIKCU, as their president. And my responsibility is to advocate for good public policy as it benefits our independent colleges and universities. People call them private colleges and universities. But when you say that, people think that you come from wealth, that you come from money if you go to a private college. But that's not the case, not really anywhere in the country by and large, but especially not in Kentucky. 40% of our students that go to a private college in Kentucky are Pell eligible, meaning they come from a low income background. These are kids that I taught in school. These are kids like my dad. These are kids who are getting an incredible opportunity at an affordable rate because we typically graduate our students with manageable debt, they make more money when they come out. And because of the relationships that they've built in their smaller schools, they have better social capital, meaning they have people who are gonna look out for them and help them to provide opportunities. That is what I get to do every day and advocate for those students and for those institutions. Uh, And it's been incredible. It's been really neat to see a lot of the work that they've been doing specifically for low-income students. And I get to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak, to create opportunities uh, for the kids that that mean so much to me. OJ, your story and your experiences, as you shared with your Teach for America students, are certainly inspiring. And even the takeaway, like sometimes we can share the, yeah, you talked about the homecoming king and the SGA president, but when you went back in your story to share both the ups and the downs, I mean, I can imagine whether it's the students that you taught or the college students that you now interact with, that connects. I'm just, I'm so thankful you're in that position, even from a college student perspective. I've shared with you a couple of times that we have a few of those in the city in which I live. I was mad at you for coming to Owensboro and I didn't know it. I'm over it now, but the next time. time, Okay. Yes. Forgiveness is key, but even those, the, that's a great example of just the remarkable options that we have. And I'm thankful for your work. It takes someone that has a holistic view of education and everything that goes in that. For you, as you're, you're such a young person, you shared that you met your wife and you all have a, you have a baby. You're a young leader in our state. Share with our audience today. I mean, you've talked about vision. You've talked about purpose. You've talked about like, a, you know, having a big and important goal of ending generational poverty. How have you thought through those things? Is that the byproduct of mentors? retreats, personal goal setting. I feel like you just have such a grasp on where you're heading. And from my experience, when you know where you're heading, people want to get on your boat with you. Or is it the the bus that they say, you know, people want to get on your bus and they want to yeah, be, you gotta you gotta get on the right on seat. The bus. Yeah. Yes, kick some people off. Say that. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it really is a, all of the things that you've mentioned. It, it is good quality mentorship. And, and what I would tell anybody within their career, Find good mentors. And I know that sounds like a chore. It also might sound like a cliche, but you got to go find them. And they they can be people who are in your profession. They can be people who just know you personally. They can be somebody that you met along the way. One of my mentors is somebody I met in college. It was the, the student government advisor. We just kept in close contact. Uh, another mentor of mine is somebody who, who knew my dad when they were professors together at Easter, they, mm. we have just kept in contact and I really leaned on him uh, for his expertise in, in higher education and, and leadership in general. 
Again, Allison Ball is another one that I mentioned, uh, somebody who understands politics and the political process well. You don't have to have just one mentor and they don't have to be exactly like you. You can learn from people in a lot of different ways if it is something specific to leadership, if it is specific to a skill or an ability, uh, or if it's specific to a career and what you wanna do and where you wanna go. I encourage you to find all kinds of people but then also, I really do think there is significant value to doing leadership stuff. I mean, again, we kind of roll our eyes at leadership retreats and uh, taking uh, leadership tests and figuring out who we are as people. But all that stuff really matters, again, if you know exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish. And it, it doesn't have to be so specific of, of a big goal that I've outlined for myself. It can be that you want to be a great something, whatever it is your career is. You want to be a great business leader. You want to be a great attorney. You want to be a great marketer. You want to be a great podcaster. Whatever it is you want to be exceptional in, and we should all be trying to do that. We should all want to be exceptional in whatever it is mm -hmm. that we're doing. And so as a result, that's the lens from which you look through things. If you want to be an exceptional marketer, you want to be the best communicator, you want to be a great engineer, you want to be a great dad or a great mom, whatever it is that you want to do really, really well, start to look at different opportunities from that perspective. What does it look like to be a leader and a dad? What does it look like to be a leader and a podcaster? What does it look like to be a leader and an attorney? And then that's when you can start thinking about your particular leadership style and how that can play a role. Or you look at somebody who's 40 or 50 or 60, and they're great at their thing. You can ask them, what did you do in your field? Who did you look up to? What sacrifices did you make? And again, you can apply that to your specific lens about what matters to you. And then from there, that's what can be the agent that drives you in the work that you're trying to accomplish. So it, it's, it's general in the sense that you can ask a lot of people the same questions, but it's specific to you and no goal is too small. I don't think any goal is too big. You just have to have one, have a goal, have a purpose. And then that's the type of thing that you can use to drive every conversation that you have along the way. Well said. You alluded to this in your pursuit of, of excellence of what you're doing. You know, you're a spouse and you're a father and you're a leader. You live a pretty high capacity life. And so how do you think about those things as well? You know, we always say Sharpen is the podcast for young professionals in their whole life. You know, there is work and we talked a lot about work today, but your life outside of work and the relationships there all become a big puzzle piece together, right? So how have you thought about that here lately, especially with the arrival of a little baby girl and share with us any learnings there, especially as a young professional, as you've gained responsibility in your careers and also started a family. Well, I've thought about it a lot in, in a strange way. I think this is the one benefit of this whole pandemic is that it, yeah. it forced me to be home. The job that I have now, we've got 18 colleges, again, all across Kentucky. So I, I traveled a lot before March and the baby got yeah. here in May. And what it forced me to do, and this was a good thing, was to be present, was to be at home. So I wasn't thinking about, well, what campuses can I go visit in June mm. when I have a six-week-old? I just, I, I wasn't able to go places, yeah. which ended up being really good. I got to be home. I got to see the milestones that are really teeny tiny and small that happen yeah. at six weeks after two weeks, that happened at 12 weeks after eight weeks. And all those things, and it really gave me a different perspective. My wife and my daughter and my family, 
those are the things that are going to remain. Jobs will change. The way that you achieve ambition, that will change. Even the, the medium in which we have conversations, first it was in person, now it's through Zoom. Hopefully at some point it's in person again. Even that changes. But what should remain the same is your family. Now, in a way, your family changes too, in the sense that you transition from being a full-time child to being an adult that maybe has a spouse, or maybe has a kid, or maybe just has other people in your life, whether they're friends or your community that you really build family around. I think mm-hmm. those things are important, but that shouldn't change. And that should always be first. And so when my wife and I have talked about this, because she is equally ambitious, she is a, a principal of a middle school right now, mm-hmm. uh, low-income kids. Again, she was a Teach for America alum. This is one of the things that binds us together. We always try to make time for the little one. And we always try to make time for each other. Because again, as those things change, we want to be able to say in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years that our relationship was built on something that was different than the work that we Mm -hmm. did, built on something that was deeper than the results we tried to produce in our jobs. And again, all of that stuff is important. We we just talked for a little bit about how it's important, but none of it matters without family. And again, even the accomplishments that I've had are a testament to that. If my father didn't prioritize building a relationship with the son, I would have no idea all the things that he did in his life. If he didn't prioritize being a good husband and a good dad, I would have no idea about what those things looked like. Mm. And I wouldn't be doing well in those things to the degree that I am now without that example. So for us as young professionals, as we're in the stage in our careers where we're either looking for those things or we're new in those things or we're really learning and understanding what that stuff is, this is the time to really orient your life around the importance of family and making sure that whatever decisions you make, if your job takes you to a different city, if it takes you to a different pace, that your family and the people that matter to you are always incorporated in that process. Again, they don't they don't have to make the decision for you. It is ultimately your life and, and you should make the things, make the decisions that you think are best for that. But incorporated in that should be your family and how that they would react and how they would benefit from the decisions that you make. Such a good reminder. So important of that, that inner circle of our lives, whether that is a spouse and a child, or maybe it's our dearest friends or significant others, whatever that looks like. I mean, that will be what remains. And, you know, OJ, I was listening to a podcast from a very, very successful business owner. And this business owner talked about getting to age like 50 and then realizing that because the career had taken the front and center of almost every year of his life, he was like, It was really hard to say as a grown man, but I had no friends. And to be reminded of the importance of these relationships in every season, because they're never easy, right? Like you and your wife, it's never easy. You've got a six month old to go on date night. It ain't easy. I know that. But the importance (laughs) of prioritizing our priorities. And you know what? There's probably a follow-up episode between you and your wife. That would be a good time as well. So we'll just table that. Just keep that in mind. I see that seed being planted. Yeah, I like it. I just feel like it would be the most dynamic thing ever, but she's doing the good, good work of being a principal and the impact. I had an interview with a, you know, someone who's in retirement now and he, uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I asked for a, a shout out and a game changer. And he gave the example of a fourth grade teacher who wrote in a journal, like I see leadership in you. And he was not the kid that he shared that was a leader. He said, you know, I got bullied a lot at this stage in my life and to have a teacher like literally write words of life (laughs) into this journal. And so you do that, whether you're doing it as the teacher in the classroom or in the roles that you have today. So 
thank you so much for joining us. We do have those two questions for you. I just appreciate you sharing so much of your, of your life story. In light of that, I would love for you. We ask every time on Sharpen Podcasts for our guests to make a shout out. It can be to someone or a group of people. Uh, you have done that seamlessly all throughout the episode. So you may be out of shout outs at this point, OJ. Well, actually, you did make me think of one based on mm. uh, the other person that you mentioned. I have to shout out Miss Hunt. Miss Hunt was my eighth grade English teacher. Uh, and you got to understand about me in middle school, it's really not much different than now. I talked a whole lot, <laughs> seemingly endlessly about random same. things. I was a little bit of a jokester and I would often get bored in class. And I remember Miss Hunt, after one eighth grade English class where I talked about nothing, but all I had all the kids laughing. She said, you know, you really should read the material because kids listen to what you have to say. Your peers are really interested in, in the words that you have, and you could be a real leader if you would just contribute to the conversation on the topic. And that was such an interesting thing. I had never heard a teacher say that to me before, that wow. I was a leader and that people would listen to what I have to say. And ever since then, any opportunity that I have gotten, Kirby, I have talked and tried to get people to listen to what I have to say. And it started out being rough around the edges, obviously in, in high school and those early years of college. But I never lost that belief that Miss Hunt had in me and I eventually developed in myself that I could be a leader specifically through the way that I communicated an idea or the way that I talked about something. If I could get people to see it from my perspective or I could get people to see in themselves what I saw in them or what Miss Hunt saw in me, then we could have a better world. And only recently have I begun to try to make that into a, a system to actually institutionalize that. We're going to be launching soon through my association, a leadership development program for college students. Again, kids that come from low-income backgrounds, mm -hmm. students of color all across our institutions with that same belief. Give them the resources, give them the social capital and the belief in themselves that they can achieve. So I, I don't know that Miss Hunt knew that when she was mm -hmm. saying that to me as, a, as an eighth grader. She was probably just more exacerbated that she had this kid who wouldn't quit talking in class. But I took those words to heart. So Miss Hunt, I appreciate you and I thank you and shout out to you for being a game changer. I think all of our teachers needed to be reminded of they are doing the good, good work and it is very hard right now. Well, tell us too, what has been a game changer for you? So it's something that has sent your path in a different direction. Again, you've shared those seamlessly throughout our conversation today, but anything come to mind that kind of particularly stands out? I'd say it was the summer of 2020. If I'm giving the most recent uh, game changer for me, my daughter for the first part being born, who I'm sure you all could hear in the background it's right perfect. now, trying to fall asleep. We hope that she does very soon. <laughs> but Good luck. I think, yeah, exactly. Her being born, but also being born in the summer of racial mm. and social unrest. My daughter, if, if not only because of me, uh, will certainly be half black. She may look black. My wife is uh, half Filipina, half white. But because of that, I look at my daughter and I, I think, what will the world think of you? What will be your options automatically and your opportunities automatically or not just based on what you look like or the fact that you're a girl and some people see that and the color of your skin is just too much. And because of that, a buddy of mine and I, we started an organization, a coalition, I should say, called Anti-Racism Kentucky, which is focused on trying to make policy changes at an institutional level to make opportunity more available for everybody of all skin colors and all backgrounds, but also to make sure that this conversation is 
not a partisan one. We want the idea of racial justice and equity to be one that Republicans and Democrats, conservatives, liberals, progressives, anybody across the political spectrum can join in on in a good faith way. Mm -hmm. And that's been an incredible game changer for me because it has been encouraging to see people from all of those backgrounds say, yeah, we do have to do something. We have to make things different. We got to change the politics and the conversation as they are today. And people aren't putting blame on one person or one political party. We know that this is a societal thing that we've got to get better. We've got to get better, not just for us, but for our kids, for my daughter and for her friends and for your kids and their friends. They've just got to approach this differently. So that's been a game changer for me, summer 2020. I guess that's an easy answer because it's been a game changer for everybody in, in life, but it certainly hit me in a really personal way. Yeah, you put the gas pedal down in 2020 for sure. And I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing, even thinking about the scope of industry and stakeholders that you've invited into many conversations. And even I just, I feel like going back to your vision casting, um, you were not the only one a part of anti-racism Kentucky, but just having vision for industries, even if that's maybe not the one that you're in. So super thankful for the work that y'all are doing. OJ, we have 14 additional episodes that we have now on the docket that we're going to have. And I'm so thankful for this time with you. I love getting to hear more about your story here today. This was so good. It's one of 14. So we've, we've got plenty more to do, but I, I appreciate that. I thank you for having me on. This, is, this yeah. has been a lot of fun, really exciting. And uh, I look forward to many conversations to come. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sharpen Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. And of course, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Until next time.